Welcome to another mid-month episode of A Year in Horror. And before we get into this month's extra feature, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all your communication with me over the past few weeks. I do really appreciate it. I think now I've got back to everyone. As I've said many times before, I do love chatting with you all over email and online. And now the podcast has a Patreon. It is cool to connect there as well. So if you enjoy these non-big hitter episodes, let me know and I'll just keep them coming. So in the previous big hitter episode, we explored the 1950s. And you may remember in the extensive also rans part, I included part of this conversation with the rather talented artist Sister Hyde. And we were discussing the wonderful 1959 Italian blob picture, Caltiki the Immortal Monster which was, of course, shadow-directed by Mario Bava, but officially helmed by Ricardo Frida. So, yes, Sister Hyde, she who has designed movie posters that have appeared on such powerhouse labels as Criterion, Arrow Video, 88 Films, Severin, Vinegar Syndrome, Kino Lorber, Death Waltz, Mondo, so many more. And I have to admit... I was a massive fan of her work going into this, so sorry if I sound a little bit like a fanboy with some of my questions and responses. Uh, The reason it comes across like that is because I am. And I am going to play you the full-length chat here, so yes, that's what a lot of this will be. Me being very excited. And as well as a far more extensive chat about Kaltiki, the immortal monster, she lets us in on her horror origins and also how she got into the genre film artwork business. It's a truly fascinating chat and I hardly had to edit any of it at all. So yeah, this is Kaltiki, the immortal monster, and here is the letterboxed synopsis. Slimy glob of doom engulfs the world. Academic researchers are chased by a nuclear-hot specimen of ancient Mayan blob. And that's it. Simple as that. Right, here's the interview with Sister Hyde. I'll see you on the other side. name sister hyde it's one of my favorite films so i was just like it's ah. one of my favorite films and it was a kind of thing where like i was doing design work for a while for about a year freelance just like through my name and then i was in the process of legally changing my name uh and i was like you know what i should probably update my design things at the same time and i was like 
I, I either I'm going to have to have really long involved emails with all of my clients explaining like <laughs> why I'm legally changing my name, which could be ishy, or I could just go with like a branding thing and just go with that. And then with the brand with that, I can be like, cool. If you know that movie, <laughs> you know what I'm saying with that. And if you don't, then it's like, you know, you get the, like Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde thing and a bit of my like nun fetish. Um, <laughs> but I, I adore that movie. I've got the, over there, I've got the Danish poster for it um, behind my computer. So I look at it every day while I'm working. <laughs> That's uh, and I'm pleased to say I've gotten some people to see it. I, I got my therapist to see it. I'm very pleased. <laughs> I was uh, speaking to the director of uh, Ghost Weights. Yeah, Adam Stovall. Yeah, he introduced me. He said, you've got to check out her work. So I did. And that, that's why I contacted you. Um, He's the sweetest man in the world. A hundred percent. I expected a 25 minute conversation and it, it took over a whole two hour episode. <laughs> when we were working on a Ghost Weights and then I've kind of uh, chatted with him and worked with him and some other stuff since then. Every single time we do like a Zoom call or a phone call or something like that, it goes on for like an hour or two. And then what will happen, this happened multiple times on a Go Suites and recently, we'll be like on a Zoom call for like an hour or an hour and a half. And then halfway through, out of nowhere, McLeod Andrews, the lead actor from a Ghost Suites, will just pop in out of nowhere and be like, hey guys, what's up? Uh, and we'll be like, oh, hey, all right add you into this you don't need to be here but sure man what's up i don't know i, gu I guess adam is texting mcleod halfway through the conversation being like <laughs> you, you know on it. zoom um yeah i love yeah. adam so much i owe him an email ask you a quick, um <laughs> right well we, we'll begin so i need to know before we start with every guest on the on the show mm -hmm. what's your history with horror what was that first film that you know you thought oh, hang on i'm getting addicted to this what's next so what was that spark Okay, so interesting because I have such a current uh, obsession and love for horror, and it's it's my genre, it's my like go to thing. Growing up, though, I hated nothing more than having to watch a horror movie. Scared the living life out of me. I could not do it. I would run out of the room in like Raiders of the Lost Ark when their faces melt off oh, no. or like when the skeleton comes down at the beginning, I would freak out. I couldn't do it, but I watched like Scooby-Doo all the time. And like, even some of those, I was like, I can't do that one. It's too scary. A fucking Scooby-Doo episode from like the sixties. So it was just, it was just way too much for me. I started getting kind of deeper into enjoying film just as an art form when I was in like high school because I was loving Scorsese films and I was loving Wes Anderson and that you know led me down into falling in love with like Boonwell and Fassbender and all these other filmmakers and then at the sideline of all of that was this like bridge of horror films that was like you can either cross this line or not and the first one that I watched that really pushed me over the edge of being like I can't stop thinking about this. I need to come back. Was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Wow, the Toby Hooper movie. So I saw that probably in freshman or sophomore year in high school, and it was literally just like you hear about it all the time. 
everyone talks about that movie whether they've seen it or not because it's called the texas chainsaw massacre and everyone knows the image of leatherface and i was at like a dvd real resale shop in my hometown and they had the old disc of it that was like the chainsaw on the front and the back was like ground beef um <laughs> yes I know it. which was nuts and so i was like this is five dollars i'm buying a bunch of stuff i got I, i've got to see this eventually and i bought it and i took it home and i watched it and i was so deeply fucking horrified i was so because i was like okay it's gonna be a guy with the chainsaw and he hacks up teenagers whatever nope <laughs> It is so much more than that. Uh, and it really, 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 really freaked me out. And I just kind of like didn't really get into horror much after that. But like in the back of my brain, I just kept like every few months or every year. Or so I'd be like, I need to watch that again. I need to like push myself back into that territory. And then by the time that I got to college, my first couple of like, weeks into college in October, there was a t- 24 hour horror film festival in Chicago that they do called The Massacre, which is from noon on a Saturday to noon on a Sunday. And it's horror films all day long. They start with a silent film with an like an organ score. And then they go all night. They only announced like maybe three of the titles. And so my friends and I were like, let's go to this. That'll, that'll be a fun thing to do. We can just hang out there all day. That broke my brain and sitting there in a theater for 24 straight hours watching Vincent Price movies, watching Lon Chaney movies, watching Hammer movies, watching Dario Argento movies, watching like the shit they played was so varied. They covered every subgenre, every everything. They played the original Black Christmas. They played Haunted Palace. They played Tenebrae. They played Trick or Treat from just a couple years ago. They played uh, Twins of Evil. They played um, Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive. They played Day of the Dead. They played The the Town That Dreaded Sundown. Like, it was just one after another of hits after hits after hits of, like, deep cut things that I had maybe only heard of or just knew. They showed Cemetery Man, like nutso movies and i walked out of there the next day like a different person um and it totally changed my life and that's that was really the thing that got me into horror being like oh it's so many things it's not a guy in a hockey mask running around killing teenagers it's really high art stylized giallo movies it's grungy nightmarish it's almost real southern horror it's this grand stylish edgar Allan poe roger corman vincent price stuff it's it's all of these things and people they're baking in like political and sexual ideas underneath the guise of a b picture to get you know more stuff across and the cultural import and impact these is like second to none, despite the fact that everyone looks down on horror. Everyone knows these movies, though. You say Vincent Price's name to someone, they immediately are like, yeah, the creepy horror guy. Yeah. And they, you can tell someone, you know, a slasher movie, they imagine something. You tell someone a Vincent Price movie, they imagine what that movie's like in their head. 
we all have a shared cultural language of horror and kind of what these are and they're doing so much more than we give them credit for i don't know i that day changed my life it sounds fantastic 24 hours is a really it's a tough time yeah it's awkward but what a great sort of time frame to get your history of horror cinema in yeah i learned a lot that night and the biggest takeaway that i had was i really like those italian ones (laughs) i really like the dario argento guy what else did he do wow that's amazing i'm totally jealous of that i I can't imagine watching eaten alive on a big screen like what must that be like right after town the dreaded sundown like and also eaten alive at like four or five (laughs) a.m So half the audience is still asleep and they like just made it through Ten- Tenebrae and Cemetery Man. And you're like, <laughs> come, I like, I think I only caught half of Eaten Alive because I was like coming in and out of consciousness. Cause I was like, this one's slow in 70s and Southern. I can probably nap through half of this. And so I probably am mixing up Town the Dreaded Sundown and Eaten Alive in my head a little bit. But, like, that's a pretty cool way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to mush two films together, that's that's so right. You could do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the horror thing down, uh, which is I'm already totally jealous of. Another thing is I take it art is your passion. And you're getting now to actually be commissioned by those big powerhouse sort of arrows and criterion to do their front covers and their artwork this must be a dream come true it really really is a dream come true but also one that i never thought would be something that could ever happen um i don't have a formal background in fine arts i went to art college but i went to art college for directing and like experimental filmmaking and things like that but i always had a passion for these movies especially growing up here in the States, having a library like a block from my house that was stocked with the Criterion Collection DVDs. That's the only way I knew of, um, I was like, oh yeah, you get those from the library. They're the really good ones. Uh, And they got all the Yard House movies and Wes Anderson and stuff like that. And those covers are amazing. And every month we're gifted with another slate of five new masterpieces or something like that. And when I was in high school, a lot of those artists that have now really kind of made what we think of as being those Aero and Criterion covers so great all had blogs. So Sam Smith, who did like the house poster and he did Bound for Arrow and he did The World on a Wire for Criterion and Eric Skillman, who's their in-house art director, who did Berlin Alexander Platz and so many brilliant brilliant covers for them night train to munich is a big favorite of mine and then efron miller who also does like half of criterion's titles and michael boland and all of these great graphic artists had like process blogs and so i would stumble across their blog see all of the unused pieces and then also read about their thought process behind making this and reading the Eric Skillman's blog post on designing the James L. Brooks movie broadcast news, which is all photographic. He's using stills from the movie and building a scene. 
that shot doesn't exist in the film and it's very complex and very deep focus sure. is beautiful. And it's so intelligently planned and laid out so that my like, you know, 16, 17 year old brain could be like, oh, you can like make that in the computer and you can like do design in a way that's not like paint brushes and inks and things like that. Right. That blew my mind. And then when I went to college, no one cared about the films I was making, but they liked my opening credit sequences. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm fun with font, I guess. So I was hired to do a lot of those for people and do like festival posters for their short films so they could get into, you know, slam dance and things like that. And then I ended up in LA and I ended up working as an editor um, at a company and they didn't have an in-house designer because they were kind of still starting out. And I was just kind of taking the work on myself. Also, like I had self-taught myself Photoshop. I learned a lot more on the job. And then all of a sudden they realized that like, wait, Drew's doing all of that. <laughs> all right, well, let's promote her from being an editor to in-house designer. Um, and then that was just what I was doing to pay the bills while I was like working on scripts and stuff like that. And then I've reached a point where I was like, I'm enjoying the design work though. I really like what I'm doing with this, but I'm just doing like thumbnails for a streaming service. I'm like oh. still and, you know, title treatment. I feel like I could do more. I feel like I could do better than that. I feel like I maybe could try to be, to, you know, get involved with like, maybe not Criterion or Arrow, but like, you know, maybe like Kino or 88, someone that's like also doing crazy cool stuff, but is not so like upper echelon as that. Yeah. That like, you know, that just seems so far off in the ether. Um, and a friend of mine named Scott Saslow is a brilliant designer. And I discovered his stuff on Instagram and he was designing for Arrow and he had done their film noir box set and he'd done a lot of great international titles for them. And he had been doing a year of fan posters on his Instagram account beforehand that I'd already been following. And I was like, wait a minute, that guy who did those great fan posters just for a year straight on his Instagram, he's doing arrow covers now. Okay. <laughs> I might be able to do this. So I reached out to Scott. We hung out a little bit. And then I did the same project. I did a year of fan posters on my Instagram account and started a Twitter account because um, I never had one before the 2018 <laughs> and started getting involved with kind of the fan art world online, which is so nice and so supportive and just so many brilliant artists working in there right now. And I spent a year basically experimenting and like playing around in the sandbox trying to see like what worked for me and so I would do collage pieces I would try my hand at digital painting I would do really conceptual things really minimal things try for like small bass things and do something that's just like typography if I can sell something on that and then you know after a year of that I took like a month or two off and was like that was insane why did I do that whatever and i'd gotten some commissions and those were fun and then all of those people in that poster community were like drew you haven't made anything recently you should put something up and i was like 
no, I'm so burnt out. I did a whole year of this. I kind of don't want to do anymore. And they're like, just do, do something small and just do it for you. And then if it's good, kick it out. And so I did a little poster for the William Friedkin movie Cruising. Cause I'd probably like just seen it at the time. And all of a sudden, everything kind of like fell into place. That cruising poster is kind of the thing that cemented, quote unquote, my like style and my go to like approach to working on a project. And I was really proud of it and I really enjoyed it. And then that started being the thing that I sent around at the front of my portfolio to people. And then, you know, that started snowballing into was doing more independent commissions for independent filmmakers I knew and then they would recommend me to other filmmakers or other artists that I knew would recommend me and I would recommend them and at the same time I was reaching out to these companies and they started taking a chance on me and so my first year I I ended up quitting the job I was at went full-time freelance my first home video client was 88 And they straight out of the gate offered me two titles and we did Pets and Terror Train. Amazing. Which was nuts. And the Pets cover is just a photograph of my boot um, with the (laughs) tongue. And it's great as well. What a cover. (laughs) And a lot of people got upset at that cover, which made me very pleased. (laughs) And so, I mean, the, the concept of the very first home video title that I worked on was uh, a kink lesbian exploitation film kind of has paved the path for the rest of my career (laughs) almost everything else has kind of fallen into place around that and then you know I had the great fortune throughout the rest of that year to get to work that first year to get to work with Kino and I did the collection of Maya Darren films and I got to work with a lot of really great independent filmmakers like Eric Bloomquist and I've got to work with Waxwork Records and I've got to work with a lot of really, really fun, really great clients. And then very end of that first year in December, I was like, cool, wrapped for the year. I can kick back and relax. And that's when Criterion reached out to me and I was like, you sons of bitches. Wow. And they reached out to me with the Scorsese set and it was very much, we're going into the holidays. You're probably not available but we're doing this thing. Do you want to be involved? If not, we totally get it. Cause it's like going to be Christmas in like two weeks. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is my Christmas <laughs> present. Yes, please. And I, you know, still really didn't know that much what I was doing. I knew more or less, but it was the first time I was doing a full package by myself. I was doing the cover art, I was doing the booklet and I was doing the wrap and the interior and the disc and the menus. Wow. And so I was a kid in the candy store and I got to just experiment and have fun. And then at the end of the day, Martin Scorsese had to approve everything that I was doing, which was <laughs> That's brilliant. surreal. And since then that has spiraled into now working with Mondo and Death Waltz, having a really great working relationship with Arrow. I'm doing more with 88. I've had, I've had some really great, further work with Criterion. I got to do The Elephant Man for David Lynch and Mel Brooks, which two people that I cannot believe signed off on my work and in a a way that I still pinch myself over. We just did Menace to Society for the Hughes Brothers, which was also one of Criterion's first 4K releases. So I got to be part of that launch, which was nuts. 
Um, and every single time that I've had the tremendous opportunity to work with Criterion, they're super nice, super kind. And on top of that, allowing me to experiment and push the packaging and the design further every single time. So Scorsese, I was learning what I was doing, just taking what I'd been doing and then just trying to adapt it to what Criterion does. On The Elephant Man, I had the great fortune to do digital painting and right. for it to work for that. And then for Menace, I had the, again, the great fortune to be like, it was not planned. The final, what we have is the final was not like planned to be like a slip case and everything like that. It was just going to be like a pretty standard release. And then <laughs> foolishly or not, I was like, what if we did die cuts? Wow. And they were like, <laughs> we'll see what the directors think. And luckily the Hughes brothers were into that. So we ended up doing, we got away with it. And I'm really proud of how it turned out. And we printed it. Uh, I think they like screen printed it with like silver dyes and like really vivid Pantone reds. And it came out looking phenomenal. I did. I know it's dropping in England like this coming week. So highly recommend picking it up. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, and yeah, and with Arrow, like, man, I got to work on a collection of Fassbender movies. <laughs> Yeah, with them they hit me up to do a punk film from the 80s and i was like yes yes please i'll do over the edge hell hell yes and then i got to work with adam stovall and a ghost weights and i got to do a collection of jules de sin noir films um and then i got to do a kim ji woon korean ghost film a tale of two sisters one of the best horror films of all time and then i've had the immense pleasure to do like half of the half of every film Fassbender's made with Arrow now something like 20 movies I think across the three sets insane and every single film has unique artwork yeah I can tell yours from the pack because there's a clear definition of space the gap where there is nothing maybe just color mm. and I can pick that out from, from a batch of others like we go to um hmv over here or fop or whatever and there'll be a huge stack of arrows you guys are uh, so lucky to have hmv and fop <laughs> all we have is barnes and noble which is great and best buy which when i would go there as a kid it would be like rows and rows and rows of movies and now there's like a shelf oh man this is what was so great when when i knew who you were i, I saw your style and i was like <laughs> That's got to be true. Uh, uh, yeah, and yeah, and it was. So It's so kind. Like, there's things that you can now, I, well, I can with a bit of a trained eye and not much of a trained eye. I, I, <laughs> I know your work. And just a couple of weeks ago, I discovered your website as well, which has got oh, yeah. a ton more stuff, which you've never released um, uh, officially for, for something. Those ideas and things like that. And they're fantastic as well. It's such a great archive. Um, do you want to just head people over there so they can see exactly what you're up to? Oh, yeah. So my design brand is Sister Hyde, taken from the Hammer film. And then my um, website is sisterhydesign.com. Um, and so all of my recent work is up there, stuff for Criterion and Altered Innocence and Vinegar Syndrome. and But then also like my back catalog 
is all in there too. So you can go through like, like I mentioned that poster a day project, that's all in their catalog as like a piece. A lot of my unused pieces or killed pieces for things are in there. You know, not all of it's good. A lot of the earlier stuff is in there and I'm not very proud of it, but it's still there because like, I consider my portfolio a living being and I, and kind of like a garden where like, even if there's weeds, it's still a living being. I don't want to trim them. They're not, you know, going to overtake something else. You know, I can keep them off to the corner, but it's still there and it's still mine. And, you know, if someone comes across like my Heather's poster from like three or four years ago or something, and it's like, I love that. I want you to do blank like that. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm not going to put it on the front of the portfolio, but if someone likes it and it resonates with them, I'm going to leave that out for them. I don't know. I don't, I'm not very precious about my stuff. I'm not very like adoring about my own stuff. I'm very critical of my own stuff, but I'm still going to leave it all up in a context. And usually the, it's my entire website is just whatever's newest goes first. So I think right now is the nasty habits box set that I did with Severin, which drops on Monday. Okay. What an intro like that. That is what I came here for. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's just been good fortune. And, you know, I knock wood every day and it's, it's been pure happenstance. I fell ass backwards into this <laughs> and I'm just fortunate enough that no one's seen through the ruse yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's great. We, we were actually talking today about Keltiki, the immortal monster. And this is a film that I discovered again, thanks to Arrow on a blind buy to HMV one day. And my first watch, I was okay with it. I think I gave it a half marks and I watched it again for this. And then all of a sudden things were happening that I didn't notice the first time around. It was a really great experience. Um, It's a really interesting movie. I also, Arrow announced it. And they did this great new cover up by Graham Humphreys, who he's it's fucking Graham Humphreys, man. Yes. Talk about iconic. You can tell his work mile off. Nah, I'm nothing. Graham Humphreys is the shit. He's been doing this since the 80s. He did the Evil Dead 2 poster, man. He's he's God. And he did this for Arrow. I think the same month he also did City of the Dead for Arrow. And I was like, those are gorgeous and what a double bill. <laughs> and so I finally, and I've, you know, been a big Bava fan for a while. And then I was like, I don't know. It's the one of the early ones he did with Ricardo Freda. He's not technically credited. It's more his cinematography work. I'll see it eventually. I don't know about 50s monster movies. I blind bought it during an arrow sale. Because they there's air sales so wonderful and so affordable, yep. especially here in the US to have them shipped. So that's the only way to do it. Uh, and then I was like, finally popped it on one day as like a Saturday morning movie to be like, yeah, all right, I can deal with some camp. If it's dull, I can just like play on my phone for a little bit. It is not dull. It is one of the loudest, most inventive, wild. 50s like b movies ever made and the fact that it has only kind of 
gotten a little bit of prominence prominence recently is a shock to me because the fact that this movie hasn't you know developed a similar cult status as you know son of the creature or creature walks among us or uh you know black sand sunday black sabbath and the blob and Quatermass and like it's doing what a lot of these other movies do and a very pulpy very fun entertaining way and I think it's also public domain so like <laughs> why isn't this playing on tv all the time why don't you hear Joe Dante talking about this movie all the time I just think like it never really got a, an American or English language release much at all and it got buried. And I'm so happy that we're kind of able to rediscover it. Well, it's not a secret for those that have seen it that it sort of one-ups the blob. It's a better film than the blob. And if Oh, it's you... a mile better than the blob. Uh, which is so strange when um, you would listen to a podcast or it would be on a documentary about 50s movies. It's the blob that will get mentioned. It'll never be Kaltiki. So, yes. Never very strange um I get, and the blob is, has the criterion release and the blob has steve mcqueen and it's early technicolor and listen the blob is great it's good fun and it's very influential i mean night of the creeps and like everything takes from the blob because like it's called the blob and it's got that theme song <laughs> and the theme song's great it's just pink jelly and it comes from outer space. It wants nothing but to consume, except if you freeze it. Side note, I've always loved that final shot of the blob just sitting in Antarctica. And I've always wanted someone to make a blob versus the thing movie. They're both stuck in Antarctica. The blob hates cold. The thing hates fire. Send them at each other. They're both amorphous <laughs> space creatures. I don't want alien versus predator. I want blob versus thing. They missed a trick. I think that's what's happened there. They've missed, <laughs> they've missed mm -hmm. financial gold. Come um, on, John Carpenter, you get time. The thing, uh, well, not the film, the thing, but the thing I find with this one is you have to get on board straight away with what the Kaltiki is. On one of the extras, it was described as a leather version of the blob with water being poured over it, which is very strange. Yeah. Um, my wife watched it with me and she said, is that just somebody in like a bin liner? So, you know, if you can get over that initial thing, I even think the miniatures that are employed are just cute and they're, they're really good fun. The miniatures, the matte paintings, the underground, the underwater photography, the process photography this is an effects film of a really high budget like th these are all things that you know by the late mid fit in mid 50s in italy they could do pretty cheap and accomplish a lot of big things val luton would have killed to have half of these techniques in his movies at rko like half of these special effects techniques were developed on Citizen Kane. Like, it is insane. And they're so well done. And like, the opening sequence that 
blends together stock footage, matte paintings, and then miniatures of like a volcano and stuff all into one big process shot. Weirdly reminds me of the like jungle picnic scene in Citizen Kane or like shots from King Kong. Stuff that like in the 30s and 40s would have been a big deal. And we'd still be talking about today as like, that's a really involved process shot. That's a really involved special effects thing. By the mid fifties in Italy, they're just doing these on a soundstage, shooting what they can shoot. And Bava was really like the big guy for special effects stuff and the big guy for this beautiful cinematography. But talking about Kaltiki as a blob itself, if you took the blob from the 58 film, it's stuck in black and white, it would look terrible. People that grew up watching that movie on black and white, you know, uh, cathode ray tube TVs, I feel very bad for them. (laughs) Because that movie is all about the color and that pink jelly looks so great. However, they knew Kaltiki was going to be in black and white because they did not have the money. And so Kaltiki is like, it's leather, it's textured, it's got little bumps and ridges, it's all goose pimpled. I love that. Uh, and it's crawling in a weird way, and it feels more flesh like because of that. And they give it all of these like textures and nipples and things so that it can catch the light in the black and white and be more tactile. And so it reads better. You can like feel Kaltiki, you know what it would feel like to touch Kaltiki which is such a weird, weird experience to have in a movie. But also it's a blob film, sort of, which to say that's a genre unto itself, (laughs) but it's a blob film where the blob doesn't show up until the last 20 minutes. Sure. 10 minutes. Because until then, they're doing like the mummy and the creature of the Black Lagoon kind of thing. They're explorers in South America. They've got to go into these undersea caves and you get a lot of that kind of colonial view on South American culture of like, look at her dance um, for a little bit. And then that reaches a climax. And then you go back to Mexico city or the U S or wherever the rest of the movie takes, or Italy, presumably wherever the rest of the movie takes place. And they just do the Quatermass experiment. And then they do the blob and The great thing about this movie and the great thing about a lot of Italian films from this era is that they were made for audiences who weren't paying attention. And that is brilliant. And the same thing can be said of the Westerns that were being made at the time and a lot of what Baba would eventually make like Blood and Black Lace. So like Caltiki, Blood and Black Lace and Django all have one thing in common and that is Italian audiences of the 50s and 60s. They would come into a movie whenever the fuck they wanted. They'd be smoking, they'd be eating, they'd be talking, and the movie's just up there on the screen. And so the movie has to constantly be asking for the audience's attention. Right. With American films and British films from the era, it was like, we are going to slow burn this. I rewatched this this morning, and I kept thinking about hammer's version of the mummy with christopher lee and that movie's great but that movie's all about atmosphere and building up tension of like okay cool he broke his arm okay we're gonna go into the 
tomb again. Something happened. We're back in England now. Something's happening. We don't know what it is. Someone's creeping into the room. We don't know who he is. It's very slow. It's very suspenseful. And same thing with the U.S., you know, Universal Monster movies or the Val Luton movies or, you know, the giant mantis and things like that. Those are being made for an audience that is sitting there. They've maybe just watched an A picture or, you know, a bigger movie beforehand. And half the audience, they're a little bit more tired. And they're going to sit there to see who that cat person is. They're going to sit there to see if Simone Simone gets it. They're going to sit there, you know, to see what Frankenstein's monster is going to do. Cal Tiki, like I said, much like Django and much like a lot of those other Bava and Freda and other also like Umberto Lenzi movies at the time. They knew what Italian audiences were doing, which was not giving a fuck what was on the screen. Crazy. So they had to constantly be giving them setups, new locations, new, like Caltiki is climax after climax after climax. Totally. So you do the South American creature in the Black Lagoon thing. So you start in a foreign place. So you immediately get to draw the audience in on that with these great special effects shots, these really creepy inserts from Bava of like a snake going through a skull on the ground a hand coming up over a cliff, really dramatic, really cool underwater photography. As a scuba diver, I love underwater photography, especially in black and white. And when it's just skeletons, oh my God. (laughs) I am sure this later informed Inferno. Delightful. And then that comes to its own little climax in a way that's, that could have been the climax of like an adventure movie. And we get a lot of pseudoscience and Betatron rays and it's a single-celled organism, sir, kind of dialogue. And then they start to build a little bit of the mystery, but there's not much mystery. It's a meteor's going to come. Caltiki's an evil monster. The Mayans were right, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so there's got the Quatermassy, Cronenbergy body transformations and the slow villainy and then we go into the full-fledged blob movie with flamethrowers and effects you cannot have a better time with a b-movie than kalafiki in my opinion there is something very very true to that i had no idea that that's how italian audiences would react and you can see then why this is a bit of a roller coaster of a movie and those big moments like you've mentioned there that it was like the finale of an American movie but they've popped that right at the beginning the Mm -hmm. the work that they've done on the skulls and um the the corpses is is incredible the effects are so good for that time like I mentioned that great scuba diving scene at the beginning which is then climaxed with they pull his body out and he has that great skull look, which again is on the arrow cover. And that's what sold me on the movie. <laughs> Skeleton with an eye and like, you know, a regulator coming off. Yeah, I want. I don't know what that is, but I want to see it. And that shot is so great. And it's not like you get it for two seconds. They know how great that shot is and they hang on it and they let you see everything. And honestly, it holds up. You 
you can't see where the rubber meets the road on that one. It really is just like, <laughs> yeah, that's a dead body. Okay. Yeah. Sure, I guess. It's interesting watching this because you can kind of see where Ricardo Freda stops and where Mario Bava picks up. Yeah. Because Bava was the cinematographer and I think Freda quit the film from, or was from, fired or something. Well, from what I think he just yeah. like gave up after a while. <laughs> As far as I can tell from the commentaries, there was a, a, a moment where it was just like, Barber, you've got this, here you go. And it was just like gifting the film, which is a, a real strange way to work. But and they'd worked together on The Vampire, and which was like the first Italian horror film of like the sound era. And, you know, I... I don't, and Freda, of course, would do some like really great jolly later on. But like, I mean, there's a good amount of trust there in just kind of passing the reins over to him. But also, like, I want to know what was going through Freda's head. He made the right choice because Bava comes in to do all the second unit stuff and he comes in to do all the special effects stuff. And so it was the kind of thing where, like, Okay, you've got two characters walking through a jungle set or walking through an apartment set and they're talking about things and it's pretty flat and it's pretty what you would expect from, you know, an AIP picture or something like that. And then all of a sudden you'll get an insert on some lab tech or on Kaltiki in like his little bot, her little box, or you'll get, you know the jungle floor with a skull and a snake running past it. And all of a sudden those are really heightened. Those are really stylized. The lighting changes in those. And I mean, there's the great, great cinematography in this movie. There's an amazing shot that's backlit. And so it's just a field of light and he's stumbling out towards the lens and he's just this shifting figure. And it's so beautiful and the way that Bob is using zooms in this movie and the way that he's using the textures in the black and white it's making and the way that he's using the special effects and the makeup prosthetics on the actors and on Kaltiki the way he uses the fire from the flamethrowers at the end when you see a flamethrower in like the thing or something like that it's really like it's a flamethrower. They hold the thing and the fire comes out like this and it's like, it goes where they point it. In this, it's like spitting lava. They're like, these men don't know how to use a flamethrower and so they're like choking out fire everywhere they go. And it's like, (laughs) it's almost perverse. It's really, really strange. And like, I've never seen anything like it. And it looks fucking dangerous. (laughs) It does. Who let these guys have flamethrowers? Yeah. By the end of the film, there is total carnage. There was a little bit in it, again, watching this with my my wife, and where Kaltiki swallows uh, a man. And all of a sudden, it's no longer, you know, just you're watching two guys in a a blob costume. It becomes a real thing. And it looks like maybe even like a, a vagina swallowing the whole of a man and then you see the man try to get back out and the face is all gone and it's yeah. such, a, such an incredibly visceral and shocking moment that I didn't expect to see 
uh, again, I thought they'd blown that with the their initial payoff of the corpse coming out of the water. But no, they've done it again and they've done it better. And then you've still got the whole finale to go. Like this is this is something that I didn't expect from the 50s. I'm so glad that that you chose it and I watched it again because of this. Because what a film. What a film. I adore this movie. And I, you know, 50s horror films, for some reason... It's not an era that I go back to a lot. I go, I watch a lot of 60s horror films. There's a lot of those great Roger Corman films. Polanski was making his like early thrillers at the time. The first Jalla boom was starting where they're a bit more melodramatic in that Ubuntu Lindsay phase. I love all that stuff. I love what Val Luton was doing in the 40s with I Walked with a Zombie and Cat People. This really moody, like 60 minute atmospheric B films yeah. and I love all the Universal monsters in the 30s and 40s, but for some reason the like Adam Age 50s American films for me really don't hit me the same way. So Incredible, Sh- I need to see Incredible Shrinking Man again. I'm sure I'll enjoy it the second time. But you know, Giant Mantis and what's that spider like you know all the big animals attack. Yes. They all it's a it's a spider, but it's big. All of those, I'm just kind of like, okay. I love Creature in the Black Lagoon. And I love the original Blob. But it's where other countries, and I love what, you know, Hammer was starting to come up around the late 50s too and just completely changing cool. the game. But in terms of that, like, black and white, Adam Age, 50s horror film, the ones that I love the most are the very cheap, very like we're just gonna go gung-ho usually not american made independent monster movies and kaltiki is chief among them but i feel like kaltiki's sister film is the canadian british production fiend without a face Say and that, that is again? what film fiend without a face right right okay that's on yeah. my list for the 50s in fact yeah which is uh invisible brains with tails that turn people into zombies. Right. Okay. So, interesting. A great film. But again, it has that structure of a standard American or British film where you're like, all right, there's a mystery. Something's happening. We're going to learn what it is. And we're going to have exposition and maybe a little bump and fright as we go along. And then big climax. Kaltiki's giving you everything along the way. And then it's compounded by the amazing cinematography and special effects of Mario Bava. And also, something we haven't mentioned that Kaltiki has that no other film from this level of 50s horror has is more than one actress. <laughs> Good spot. There's two female characters in Kaltiki. <laughs> yes. And one of them's also technically not white, even though I'm sure the actress was, which is like really fucking impressive for the time. You watch any of those movies, it's always the one woman and she is always the doctor's assistant or someone's wife and creature in the black lagoon i think she's a scientist but in without a face it is the doctor's stenographer right or in you know all of those movies it's someone's wife and all she's there to do is provide a little bit of sex interest for the general public to cut into the trailers and be on a poster and then scream to let you know how bad it's getting. But Kaltiki 
in the middle of it is actually doing a pretty good four character romantic chamber drama just compounded by H.P. Lovecraft and Quatermass. And it's like touching onto class and race relations in terms of these like romantic liaisons they're having. This, you know, Native American, Native South American woman is in love with the scientist and he's only using her physically and can't see her in a more romantic light because of her class and because of her race. And this is something that she expresses later in the film to the other woman. She's saying that like, you're married to your husband. You have a great place. You're white. You have money. You're from like a better background than me. And you've got this great husband and everything like that. And I'm in love with him, but because you're the only other like white woman of class around, he's in love with you. And you're already married. Can you imagine how that makes me feel? And the way they're actually like getting some great emotional scenes into this movie to compound the big special effects climaxes and the like, you know, Quatermass experiment character corruption. Actually, like that's stuff that Quatermass doesn't have. That's stuff like First Man from Space and those like Robert Day movies from the 50s don't have. The issue I've got, I wish I could remember the the fella's name, the main actor, the lead is very bland. Um, Oh yeah, but that's that's the 50s horror films for you. Uh, John Merrillville. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, that was on the tip of my tongue. Um, Yes. Yes. And I thought this was going to be a really interesting interplay when we first get introduced to the, the married couple when they're arguing in the tent. And that's not normally how you would start a film like this. Uh, so there's already tension between the couple, but it's not explored. It seems like a few scenes later, they're, they're happy again. It's just everything's fine. They've got a poorly dubbed daughter. Yeah, <laughs> that is, seems to be the major issue. <laughs> They would always just get a middle-aged woman to dub a child, and it's like, okay, fine. But yeah, so they 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 start off and in a very interesting way with that relationship. But then everything else that the wife does is based around uh, Linda Daniela Roca's character. Right. She becomes her foil to express uh, the class differences and the relationship differences and yeah she's a white woman from italy but like just playing this you know native south american character and that's not great and but like they're rather than them they technically are co-opting you know south american culture but what they're really doing is co-opting american film culture of like well they do this creature in the black lagoon and they do this in the mummy and stuff like that so we're gonna do what they do and so it, there's something more innocent about that. And there's something a bit more, not more, something a little bit less like malicious about that. And they're also giving these characters like actual depth and life in a way that like Linda is one of the single most complex characters in one of these movies, period. Like she's in love with a man who does not love her back. She is in a pretty compromising sexual relationship with him that you would also not even hint at at this time and she is expressing very real class and race concerns 
throughout the film. And she's not just there to be the one non-white character to be like, there's a curse and you're not following the rules of the curse and you're all gonna die. I told you so. She does that a little bit, but she's a full character outside of just being a trope, which is actually really impressive because when you think about 50s B-horror films, especially when you think about like late 50s, early 60s, Italian B-horror films, the main thing you do not think about is characterization. Yeah, Everyone is an archetype. They are propped up to get the plot moving along, which is absolutely what John Merrillville is doing on this. He's so exhausted. He's doing his business work and research. The dialogue in Caltigi is so great because they care enough to let you know that this is science, but not enough to do any research or any interest into anything. He has a line where he's like, it's a single-celled organism. If I could learn more about it, I would know more for science and medicine. And you're like, uh-huh. How how does this affect science and medicine? It just could. Okay. We we're not here, we're not here to think about that. Science is the MacGuffin of Caltiki. It has this whole idea running through it of how like these ancient civilizations like the Mayans their beliefs line up with what we now denote as being science and we can explain it through science this way this way this way and it's an interesting idea to run through you know these atom age monster movies to you know take a second look at native american civilizations and their beliefs and you know go back to them outside of the white colonial American lens of (laughs) silly natives. (laughs) They think there's a space God, Uh, but to actually like, you know, take a look at through a scientific lens. But at the same time, the movie is itself is being like silly natives, space God. So (laughs) whatever. It's an excuse to have meteors and it's an excuse to have blob monsters and atmosphere and stuff like that. And does it hold up to the uh, scrutiny of a 2021 politically and racially conscious audience? Fuck no, but no 50s film does. And that's the other thing to keep in mind. Like everything that Caltiki does wrong from that perspective, so does Creature in the Black Lagoon, but worse. So does all these other movies, but worse. So it's the kind of thing where like, you accept it going in. That is the price of admission. And if you can kind of compartmentalize that or accept it and be aware of it, you can have a lot of fun. Do you think that I can see me and you are are pretty much the same with this, that we got a lot out of it and really enjoyed watching it. Do you think that your modern day horror audience could, if they're thinking of dipping into like the 50s, like where should I go? Should they go here with your first set of films that you're going to explore? I have been trying to get people to watch Caltiki ever since I discovered it. I think it is a great way to get people into older horror films and into Italian horror films in particular. Because like modern audiences much like 60s Italian audiences have short attention spans. Sure. And we kind of now 
from a contemporary standpoint, expect certain beats and certain faster rhythms can be a struggle for some contemporary audiences to go for a slower B movie, especially when it's all leading up to a special effects climax from the 50s, which doesn't really hit the same way it does now. Yeah. It can be campier now. So you're like, I'm sitting through all of this for 10 minutes of camp. Meanwhile, Kaltiki has those camp elements peppered throughout while also having genuinely chilling moments peppered throughout genuinely beautiful cinematography continually throughout the movie genuinely chilling and impressive special effects throughout the movie i think it's a great one to get people into and a lot of people that have shown 50s movies too they really love hammer and they really love stuff like that but the thing they always say is that like it's great it's beautiful had a great time love it love the actors love the ending love how it looks it's really slow slow metal or something like that what could you do yeah which like fair i feel that about a lot of other movies too i like am a pride of my generation group on commercials and mtv in a way that like okay yeah i also see things through probably have adhd whatever i don't know who's to say kaltiki works from that lens from that perspective and i think that's Part of the reason that it was such an anomaly when it came out, I cannot imagine what a 50s American audience would have made of Kaltiki. It would have blown them out of their drive-ins. I, which is why I'm so fascinated to find out more about its release in the States and about, and in England and Canada and like what people actually made of this movie when it first came out. I really want to know. Because it did well enough in Italy yeah. to keep Freda and Bava going and God in Black Sunday and we're all the better for it. Yeah. But I really want to know how it was received outside of that. Because American audiences didn't get introduced to Mario Bava really until AIP started releasing his films over here. Right. With like the evil eye recut of the men who knew too much or the girl who knew too much, which is superior to Bava's version. That is my hot take of the episode is that the American cut is better, but it wasn't until those releases of barren blood and, you know, that had blood and sex and technicolor that they could sell to American audiences in the sixties and seventies that people started to, take interest in Mario Bava and then these weird little movies coming out of Italy. And with a title like Kaltiki, I have no clue how this movie would have done in U.S. audiences. Because the blob is a made-up word, but like, if you say blob to, you know, someone in Alabama, they're like, okay, like a lump of something. All right, fine. If you say Kaltiki to someone, like, Tiki has that, like, you know, 50s kitsch Hawaiian tiki bar thing to it. Kaltiki yeah. means nothing. It's just, you know. Oh, I thought you made... were going to come and tell me exactly what Kaltiki meant then. I don't know. I don't know if it has a meaning to it. <laughs> I. It would be fun if it did. I don't think it does. I think it's just they took the word tiki and were like, how can we have something that sounds vaguely ethnic? 
to sound like, you know, a South American Mayan god or something. I do appreciate, though, how Kaltiki, in a way, feels like the Ms. Pac-Man of 50s horror movies. And I'll explain that in two ways. First of all, if you go to an arcade, you're kind of more likely to find a Ms. Pac-Man machine than a Pac-Man machine. At least recently and in the States. I've found this to be so over the past 27 years. Miss Pac-Man is the exact, to quote Wayne's World, the only difference between Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man is that Miss Pac-Man has a bow in her hair. There's no other difference. It's the same game. But people seem to prefer Miss Pac-Man. That seems to be the one that you can find more places. Kaltiki is better than the Blob. Anyone who's seen Kaltiki will tell you that Kaltiki is better than the Blob. Um, so, you know, it's not as universal as Miss Pac-Man to Pac-Man. But Pac-Man is the one that everyone knows. But additionally, Kaltiki is, they make a point of being like, nah, this is, this is the, you know, Mayan goddess Kaltiki. She is a blob. And so she yep. is just the blob with a bow in her hair. She's Miss Pac-Man. She's Miss Blob. I just think it's a blast. And I think that, you know, as we're going into the holidays and, you know, if you're planning on putting stuff together for your Halloween playlist next year, there's no better Saturday morning movie with a bowl of cereal and some blankets and some hot chocolate on the couch or at 2 a.m. with a big bowl of popcorn and maybe a couple drinks in you. It is both somehow a warm blanket and a camp riot while also being effectively chilling. And it's a very fine line to walk. I have conversations with people frequently about melodrama films that are considered camp. And they're like, yeah, it's awful. It's not good. Or it's just funny. Like Valley of the Dolls gets flagged for that a lot. Or Myra Breckenridge or sure. um, yeah. a lot of these movies. My whole thing, though, is that like, okay, yes, it's camp and it's over the top and it's funny and you can laugh at Neely O'Hara shouting her own name up at the sky and that's funny. But two scenes later, you're going to be crying at Valley of the Dolls. I promise you, you will be in terms of laughing at it and crying with it. And Kaltiki is exactly the same. There's as much to like poke at from like a contemporary audience looking at a 50s movie to be like, okay, yeah, that's a miniature shot. That's cheesy and that's fun. And oh, that's stock footage. And oh, the dub on the daughter is terrible and things like that. But at the same time, those skulls are terrifying. Kaltiki is terrifying. The cinematography is actually chilling. And you got a really bland white man scientist (laughs) at the middle of it all who is very funny. But then Max, Gerard Herter, is terrifying in this movie. Yeah. He's really, really effective. And the just crazy look in his eye, you believe the entire time. Sister Hyde, thank you so much. This has been really, really fantastic for me personally. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it as well. Thank you. And I can't wait for them to track down Kaltiki and see what they make of it. It's streaming on Aero Video and you can pick up the disc from them. The new restoration is great. 
That was a track from the soundtrack, which is available on Arrow on vinyl as well. I think actually right now, if you head over to the website, they still have a few copies of the green variant left. So if you are a vinyl head, it's definitely worth purchasing that. Musically, this one is quite reminiscent of the Hammer scores of the early 60s. But it does have its own eclectic nuance that the more classical Hammer scores don't have. There is a tribal music track and the voice work and the rhythms do borderline seem to be a bit offensive when it comes to listening with today's ear for appropriation. It does appear that that vocal work is vague and it's trying to throw a sense of other at the listener rather than being historically accurate or area specific. But that's my only niggle. But the composer himself, Roberto Nicolosi, his efforts in places are simply stunning. Just like this movie. There are some unusual choices in the wind instruments and the keys in the quieter moments. And oddly, when we hit the battle scenes towards the end, the tension build reverts back into a far more standard horror reading than those earlier parts in the film. So I really recommend, if you do get that vinyl, Side One is my favourite here. It really is an interesting period piece for sure. Arrow are always having sales, so I would advise picking up both the movie and the soundtrack next time one of these comes up. It may be, uh, yeah, well, it, I say maybe, it definitely is a real curio, but you will be cooler than your friends for investing in it. So who doesn't like to be cooler than their friends? Where can you find Kaltiki the Immortal Monster? Well, in the USA, you can watch it for free on Tubi, and in the UK, you can only find it on YouTube, but of course, you can stream it for free there. The picture's just a bit crap. But why not stop all that streaming nonsense? And as I say, just buy it direct from Arrow. It's a great package. The extras are killer. And that also includes two fantastic commentaries. Podcast-wise, the Sixth Dimension podcast covered Kaltiki in December 2017. And they must be destroyed on site podcast. They covered it in October 2018. Right, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, you can now join the podcast Patreon over at www.patreon.com forward slash a year in horror, or you can just simply email me at a year in horror at gmail.com. Maybe you prefer Twitter at NotWellerPod or Instagram, uh, that is Waller Not Weller. And if you don't want to do any of that stuff at all, then don't. Who can blame you? I tell you what you could do though. Head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice review and a five-star rating and feel good in the knowledge that you have helped out Team Horror in the best of ways. Now, next time we speak, I reckon it's going to be on the next big hitter, 1966. So, I'll see you on the first of the month. Every you do.